Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back at you with our dysfunctional panel of Chicano Latino experts zooming in from around the country for that hour of red hot chisme. In addition to our regulars, Reiner Delgado, Alex Lozada, Danny Sosa, Francisco Lopez, and our missing anchor, Magda Sanchez, we have joining us Dr. Alejandro Perez from Berkeley and Julia Avila from Whittier Califas. On our show today, we cover a range of topics, all revolving around chisme. As a community, who's telling our story? Who are our truth tellers? Today, it is literally a matter of life and death between what is fact and what is fiction. One of the lessons we have certainly learned from COVID-19 is that there are plenty of opinions framing the narrative. Having an ear and an eye open is an essential necessity to modern life, and at times, it can seem like a treacherous path. Therefore, it's imperative to ask, who's on the other end of the line? Who deserves trust? All right, so the chisme line, man. Who do we believe? Is the reality dysfunction fake news? Alejandro. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> What's up? I'm, I'm, I'm muting. I got to remember to hit the space bar. I think, yeah. I, I think I spoke a few minutes ago without speaking. <laughs> so thank you for Yeah. Hey, you got to say that again, man. You gotta say thank you, you for having me. Off. Yeah. Oh, I cut myself off. Look at that. Thank you for having me on. All right. My my very first podcast. All right. So who wants to kick us off? I He's think right. Francisco should start since he had the right. It was his um, idea. <laughs> it was yeah. his idea. Yeah. That's what you get for volunteering, son. Yeah. Sucker. Sucker. Well, you know, I put it out there. You know, um, for a while, I think. Some of us might have, you know, turned to NPR, right? Uh, NPR, you thought that was a credible source, you know, you thought that was independent. Then you found out, you know, that they kind of censored Umiya, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't give him focus. And then you start questioning things. You turn to some of the other independent sources, you know, I think Mariana Hosa, you know, is one of the figures that many of us have been following for years. Then you have Latino rebels too with uh, Julio Ricardo Arela, right? And he's doing some of those, you know, great topics. You know, even his intros, you know, are very telling of who he is and some he's been doing for a while. But even now, you know, I'll be honest, even me myself within the last few uh, months, I've been questioning some of those topics, you know. Uh, and when I look out to the way they cover international topics, you know, and specifically in my point, the one I'm referring to is Mexico and covering uh, covering some of the things going on in Mexico, it, it's always negative. Like when I hear Latino USA and, and uh, Latino rebels lately and they're covering Mexico, it's always something negative, you know, and, and I think this ties into the other one, you know, the other topic we we're talking about, uh, cultural appropriation and all that. It's always seeing ourselves in that negative light. And I'm just like, why, you know, why? Can't we ever get, you know, if we don't talk well about ourselves, who's going to do it for us? And that's where my question becomes, in, you know, who's telling me, you know, who's really behind it? What are your motives? What's going on? You know, I think a lot of times we discount the fact that we do have these networks 
we all know people and we don't we don't put a spotlight on firsthand sources enough right so when the dakota access pipeline protests were going on i have two aunts um their mother um was a dawa my step-grandmother we have a we have an american family in that sense <laughs> i got all kinds of relatives uh who aren't you know an uncle that's not really an uncle it's a cousin you know you know how it goes so but when all that was going on um, they're in the leadership of the Little Traverse Bay Tribe. My, my one aunt was selected to go to Dakota, go to the protests and represent the tribe there and be a part of all that. So yeah, I, I read all the accounts of you know what was going on online, you know, from different sources. But her opinion, her version of what happened to me is the most credible. So podcasts like this can spotlight those firsthand sources, those firsthand experiences. Um, but I mean, it's never going to be something mainstream. You know, you're always going to question new sources that are in the mainstream. But I don't know. I think we undervalue those firsthand sources. I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, for myself, my bachelor's degree is in journalism. Um, I worked as a newspaper reporter, worked in media. I think I've, I've been conditioned to be very trusting of news sources. But even more than trust, I think that's been inculcated. I think there, there's a part of me that is that's very American. That's that whole belief in free speech and, you know, like freedom of the press and, and all of that. And I've just been really, I've been shocked. There's a couple of things that have shocked me. One, the way that people argue about guns, but nobody argues about freedom of speech anymore. When we were undergraduates, well, for most of us anyways, when we were undergraduates, you know, in the late 80s and the 90s, free speech movements were, were kind of a big thing, right? And people were really pushing those envelopes around. But I think it's fascinating that with the onset of social media and, you know, the proven uh, presence of disruption in terms of people like intentionally targeting messaging, like, you know, Russian trolls and, and all of that, it makes it difficult. And I think that this is, it goes back to what uh, Danny is talking about as those firsthand experiences, right? Like if one of you call me and tell me this is what I saw, then I know that something like that actually happened. And so then thinking about like the role that even a podcast like this can really play in terms of bringing people from all over the country, right? Who have a Chicano Latino focus and who are able to, you know, speak with some expertise on a number of these subjects is super important, right? Psychologically, we're trained to not value a source because it's not mainstream. You know, we didn't see it on CNN. You know, it's just like automatic. I mean, how do we get those firsthand? How do we put those in the spotlight more? How do we spread those messages around more? Because we got people on the ground. You know, we, you know, the, our, just in something like this does actually happen, you know, in one part of the country that we can lean on somebody for a firsthand account. And it's funny for uh, Francisco, when you were mm -hmm. saying that Maria Hinojosa and Latino rebels and Marela, those are really some of the only ones that we have that are like yes. nationwide that people listen to. Like I listen to those like uh, Latino all the time and, and they're all interconnected. And so how do we, and then also like what Daniel was saying, like how do we then move beyond those two or three different voices that we have and really open it up? I think this is great that we do this because like, as you're saying, we have this nationwide reach that we can highlight different voices and put those people who are on the ground, 
put them here first person telling their story because it does matter who tells your story, right? Because who on CNN is telling our story from our perspective? True, true. You know, and uh, we have uh, Univision, you know, how many of us grew up watching Univision with our parents, you know, and mm -hmm. you looked up to Jorge Ramos and you were like, hey, you know, Jorge, you know, he's us. And then lately, I mean, again, lately for me, it's been like, oh, what's going on with Jorge? You know, what you hear some of the topics and some of the, you know, he, the focus, you know, and a lot of the time you're like, what is it? You know, what am I missing? You know? And then of course you, there's some difference between something here on TV and something you hear on the internet through social media. And I've, I've heard, uh, you know, and talking with my father-in-law and such things like that, you know, he'll tell me, oh, eso no lo cuentan en, on the TV. And then does that mean that it's not real then? Is it discredited? Who do you give credibility? How do you give credibility nowadays? Yeah. And just to bring some of that back around to what's happening right now in our new reality is, you know, people are talking about <clears throat> in our communities of color, talking about how Bill Gates started the coronavirus or that it's being spread through 5G, you know, wireless. And so in the UK, they were knocking down like cell towers. And so where is all of that? Like, who are we listening to? Like, who's credible and who's not, right? I know many of us have children. Like, my kids will be like, well, I read it on the internet. And I'm like, well, you got to see who wrote it on the internet, right? Truth be told, it probably would have knocked shit down in the UK anyways. There's a lesson to be learned here. But, you know, you don't need the internet when you have the president also saying fringe conspiracy theories and inject yourself with bleach and the healing power of the sun will cure you. And I, and I think that's where it's not, you know, it's not just one media. It's not just one unspoken media because we hear that term tossed around left and right, literally left and right, you know, the liberal media, oh, it's the conservative. I mean, I think, I think mainstream media veers conservative centrist already. Uh, how do we read through those lines? How do we sort through that? I, I read the New York Times and sometimes I, I cringe and groan and, you know, it's, but it's also a source of information for me. So how do I filter that out to find what I need to know and bring my critique to it? I think that's, that's where it is important. That's where we need that, those voices from the ground. I think that, oh, I mean, I totally think that's true. I mean, I, I read, I read a multitude of news outlets you know, on a daily basis, right? And I think that, I mean, I feel that I'm a fairly savvy consumer of information. I have gotten uh, stung a couple of times. Those uh, Russian troll guys, they can be pretty slick sometimes. But I think that the, the other thing is this, and, and I think that this is also something that, that's very difficult to discount. Well, not, no, that's not true. I think it's, it's something that's difficult to, to keep in mind. I think it's very easy to discount, actually. As uh, Chicanos, as Latinos, right, in the United States, there are certain things that we think about that other people don't, right? That perspective has to be a part of, of the news that, that we generate. I think it kind of goes back to what Francisco was talking about when he was talking about how news outlets are reporting news from Mexico. It's the same thing with Chicanos in the United States. It's always something either criminal or very simple, right? It, it never has to do with the political or the internal issues of our community because 
to the outside community, we don't have politics like that. We don't have those sorts of, of issues, right? We're very simple people. Uh, we're laborers. Uh, we're entertainers, right? But we're not politicians, you know. We're not uh, revolutionaries. Um, we're not really academics. And so I think as we begin to put together the type of uh, news or media that we really need to get this message out to other people, that that's one of the things that's important. I think it's important in the sense that when groups like this assemble together, actually that's what we are doing, is we're providing in a limited way, right? Because we don't have the sort of financial backing that a lot of these huge media outlets uh, do in any way, shape or form, but we're providing uh, a nuanced look into you know, how the Chicano Latino community thinks about itself. True. And then you have, uh, you know, one of the big issues going on right now out here in, in L.A., right, is the gentrification of, uh, of Boyle Heights. And when you think about it, we can make a show, you know, hentified about the issue. But yet on the six o'clock news, at, you know, the morning shows, who's covering that? Who's even talking about that? You know, nobody's talking about it. Look at what's right. going on now with the. Uh, with with the new LA LA Rams stadium, right over in uh, over in Inglewood, right? Who's talking about what's going on over there? Uh, you know, it's just seen positive, and it's the way it's painted. It's painted in a in a very positive light. But what about for all the for all the uh, all those residents that live around there? You know, is that really going to be a positive for them? I hope so. Or is it just going to make a matter of time before it's bye-bye. And that's a lot of who comes out to the city where I live here, you know, in Moreno Valley, is a lot of this, the people who are being pushed out of LA and they have no option but to go up. Yeah. I mean, right. to, yeah. to look back historically, is it just gonna be another Chavez Ravine or what? Bingo. And, and yeah, look at it, right? I mean, well, who would LA be without, uh, can you imagine Chicanos without their Dodger jersey? Right. Man, right. But then you bring up Chavez Ravine and it's like, oh, oh, well, I don't want to talk about that. But hey, but the Dodgers, they're coming on tonight. Right. Or even that, they, I think that's the point where some people start getting talking. Go ahead. Or even if they know about it, if they even know what Chavez Ravine is, yeah. it's history that happens right. and then is immediately erased. Yeah. You know, let's flip it to the other way. You know, look at Chicago. What, what happened in Chicago? You know, when Latinos came in, you know, we took uh, 26th Street, you know, Little Village. That's uh, the second most grossing uh, strip of land, highest commercial, you know, exchange of goods other than the Miracle Mile. You know, that's, that's huge, you know, but it's never, we're never given that. How do, we pay, how do we get that positive out, you know, so we can let go of some of that negative hate, negative hate we have inside of ourselves. Part of what we were talking about at the beginning was sort of that, that chisme line. And I think that aside from the humorous aspect of that, right, that there's really, there has to be something, something to that at the same time. I mean, all across the country, you know, we see in little towns and even in big towns, there's always these pockets of like Mexicanos and other Latinos who are doing really solid community work important stuff, very valuable to the community that they're in. But at the same time, and this is the part that I find really fascinating, at the same time in the 21st century, where we are more evolved in terms of communication than we ever have been in the history of humanity, 
all of these communities are just isolated from each other in the sense that they really don't know what they're doing in the, in the next town over or, you know, throughout the state. And so I think that that part of it is, too, is thinking about how to begin to build those community news networks, right, that offer an alternative. Because as all of the news outlets, the major news outlets in this world become more and more conglomerated together under like one or two corporations, that destroys inevitably, right? And it's not even saying that it's on purpose or it's some sort of like mass conspiracy, but it will destroy um, the diversity of news that has gotten out there. I mean, you think about Boyle Heights. I mean, what if every day in the newspaper, there was a news article that denounced or showed, denounced or showed the bad side of gentrification, right? That would change the dialogue. It would change the discussion. But that's just not happening. And I think it's also interesting, too, that, you know, we all have these, like, mini production, uh, video production capacity that's just in our pocket. I mean, we can shoot video, like, high-definition video. We can edit it right on our film. I mean, we can put words over the top of it. I mean, shit that, like, 25 years ago, man, you would have needed a whole studio to do. You could just carry it around in your pocket now. Where's the outlet for that? There was a movie that some Steve Soderbergh, I think, did a whole movie oh, yeah. on his iPhone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I watched it like a couple of weeks ago. It was very well done. Yeah. It was this very small cast, right? It was, and it was really well done. I mean, who out there in our community is doing that? And we should have them on our podcast to talk about it. Was it a movie about basketball or was it a movie about capitalism that used basketball as the medium? <laughs> That's I, I remember seeing it when it came out. I was very excited. Yeah. And, like, and I think, yeah. Ernesto, going back to what you were saying about, about the sense of isolation, about the, the consolidation of media, about where we hear these different voices, I think, I think we're in those stages of white capitalism, this, this neoliberal critique that we've been making, that the Zapatistas made 25 years ago. Yeah. We're, we're living that. Yeah. sense of isolation the the pandemic is is to me it speaks as this metaphor of late stage capitalism we are now isolated we are individuals we are on our own this is our survival and that and that goes against our way of knowing when we think about ourselves as chicanx people as as you know putting community central to our very existence and our response is to isolate. Well, what's what are other ways of framing that? And that's that's where things like this are so important as an intervention. I think that's where these these conversations, these ways of building community, even if we're physically separated, or if we want to come together because you know they, they want us to be producers, they want us to be consumed and eaten up by that machine, which is just diabolical and evil at its core. Um, how do we resist that? And I think, I think that's where it is so important to have these conversations to, to build that mechanism, that structure. If, if Texas, I don't know if anyone here is coming in from Texas, um, you know, Texas wants to reopen by Friday. And I feel like if they're willing to reopen, then they're willing, or, or then this is that spot where workers could say, well, we're not going to have a part in this and let's shut the system down and continue this impact we've seen we've seen the impact already over the past six weeks um, yeah where where are the spaces for conversations around that and i think that's where where um 
you know, going, going beyond well, good or bad representations, or, you know, I want, I want a feel good story and the news isn't writing about this, but what happens? And that's, and that's where it's really important to make these spaces. Well, what happens is, you know, you, you have a quote or the way I've seen some outlets say it, you have deaths only, they're only, com they're only uh, comparable to, you know, annual flu deaths and things like that, which is misinformation. You know, they're throwing around a meme uh, from, from an actual news quote, I'm putting this in quotes, an actual news outlet, One American News, you know, their African-American mouthpiece is putting out a meme saying, look, 80,000 people, you know, died, died from the flu. Yet uh, this year, only 24,000, you know, died from the flu. Where are the other 46,000 or whatever it is? And what she's failing to, or 56,000, what she's failing to mention is that the year that she cherry picked was the highest rate of flu deaths in four decades, you know, and then what she's also failing to mention is that last year it was only, you know, flu deaths were 32,000 or 30,200, something like that, 30, somewhere in the mid thirties. And then on average flu deaths are between 12,000 and 56,000, you know, on a year, on an average year. It's just how, you know, it's just what, what it is. Yet, you know, to get people back, you know, in harm's way, she's, or she and, you know, whoever is paying her is trying to, you know, just poo-poo it as just, you know, no bigger deal than the flu. And, you know, what's the, uh, the king from uh, uh, the green guy, the ogre? Shrek. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about so, 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 yeah. So the king and uh, Shrek says something, or the emperor says something. Like, is this a <laughs> yeah, Shrek? So, so I think there's a something going around where the uh, where the the king says, you know, some of you may die, or some of you may have to die, or sacrifices have to be made, just not by me, you know. So I guess there you go. You know, those folks are the folks pushing for the reopening. They're sitting back in their little enclaves. Red where Murdoch in March, that was his like 87th or 89th birthday, he called it off. And yet these are the same folks that are saying, hey, you know, I guess it's okay for, you know, other folks to be in harm's way as long as I keep making, you know, mine, you know, or you keep making mine for me, yeah. as the case may be. So, you know, sorry Wisconsin. about the risk to you. Did we just have our Reiner. first Disney reference? I'm just wondering. Is that, Wisconsin? No, oh, Reiner's. DreamWorks. Oh, Dream isn't DreamWorks. Isn't DreamWorks a part of Disney? One? Well, now it is, but yeah. I was saying when Shrek came out. Oh, okay. But it was it King Farquaad? Yes. King, What's that? Yeah. Farquaad. Far yeah, it yeah. was. Oh, yeah, Farquaad or whatever. <laughs> it's Farquaad. Farquaad. Don't, don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> I've watched that movie so many times. So many times. Yeah. What were you going to say, Alex? You know, going back and what you were all talking about in terms of what's happening in LA, particularly with like Boyle Heights and things. Like I think about what's happening here in New York with Harlem, with mm. Brooklyn, which was traditionally very heavy black, African-American, Caribbean, then very large pockets of Dominican and Puerto Rican. And they're just not there anymore. Yeah. And I think Spanish Harlem, which is very heavy Dominican and Puerto Rican, has been able to retain, maintain their identity and community as a Latino 
heavy Latino community, but Harlem in general, I think I heard somewhere that there are now more white people who live in Harlem than black people who live in Harlem. And if you look at Manhattan as a whole, I mean, there's a little pocket called the Lower East Side that has a very strong activist organizing community and it's all by Puerto Ricans, right? They're also being pushed out by these luxury high-rise buildings that no nobody can afford to live there, right? You're talking about communities that are making maybe forty thousand dollars a year for a family of four. You have to make like eighty thousand dollars to live in one of these buildings, if not more. The local council members in Brooklyn have started going door to door, telling elderly being robbed right and left. I mean, these beautiful brownstones that have been in their families for a long time, right? And because we tell our communities that the only way to uplift your life is to get out and move out and move out amongst white neighbors and with a white picket fence instead of staying in our communities. And so all these elderly black folk have nowhere to give, you know, to for their homes to go. And so white people are buying those brownstones at a pace that is overwhelming. Yeah. And it's changing the entire demographic makeup of Brooklyn. It's, it's white. And then you see the paved streets and the sewage that works and garbage pickup and all these services that people have wanted for generations now come into place. That's, now come into place, yeah. right. Right, and you know, white people know how to organize. They know how to go to the council meetings and hit up different local political organizations and, and call, we have 311 here in, in New York. And they complain. And see, I think that what we have to try to accomplish in in a medium like this, or you know, using or trying to provide a, a larger medium for for people to submit video stories or writing stories or whatever. Part of what we have to try to accomplish is shifting the mindset, right? So, like, I totally agree with you. I mean, if you want to learn how to take over the world you should really study white people, right? Because let's face it, they run shit pretty much, right? So the point being this, it's easy for us as uh, oppressed people, as colonized people to just sit back and say, well, all this is happening because of them, right? And to some extent, that's true. And we can always frame all of our requests as petitions to them and saying, you know, we need more civil rights, we need more money, we need more jobs. And so it's constantly this uh, petitioning of the settler colonial system. I think that the real change starts to happen when we stop petitioning the settler colonial system and we start having a conversation among ourselves that says, okay, how are we gonna figure this out? Because clearly these fools ain't gonna help us. I mean, it's been 500 years, you haven't figured out that they're not going to help. I don't know what to tell you. You heard it here first. I'm not a Russian troll, but I'm letting you know they ain't going to give you a hand up, right? So, you know, how do we use yeah. these and platforms to get that to get that message out? Maybe some people will listen, maybe they won't. I don't know. Well, you know, I, I'd say let's look at uh, talk radio. Look at what talk radio did for, you know, building on what you're talking about. Todd, you know, um, how did talk radio 
look at build the Republican Party and their base, get their message out. And there's that question, do you trust it or you not trust it? Is everybody who's on talk radio, were they all journalists? No, I don't believe so, right? But yeah, they have that credibility because they have the platform, correct? Yes. They have the platform that, and it's out there. And I think that's something also that we all know very well. If you say something enough, eventually it becomes the truth. Yeah. And I think a lot of our current reality and our current politics is based on that. It's not based necessarily on facts, 100%, but partial facts, but constant repetition of the message. Didn't Pence come out of talk radio? Mike Pence? Sure. And then he became governor of Indiana, and you know now he's second in line. Right. Look at uh, Rush think, Limbaugh, right? Yeah. Presidential Medal of Freedom <laughs> winner, Rush Limbaugh. And he got that, and the first thing he said was, you beaners get back to work. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a great man. Oh, God. A great man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. They're all they're all fantastic people. But I think I think going back to the work of culture, here's here's one way to do it. This relentless assault, this framing. It's it was an ideological struggle. They were not fringe people. They were right. articulating these agendas and they they had this this voice. They were able to make this intervention it's starting in the eighties on AM stations and does anyone listen to the radio anymore? Todd, you were talking about reading the papers. Does anyone read a newspaper anymore? And you know, obviously there's still print journalism, but, but the form that it takes, the way that we read it, uh, even the alt weeklies, I had experience in, in writing for alt weeklies and, yeah. you know, they're, they're struggling and some of these change so much as well. But but more to the point, yes, this you know these these conservative right wing uh, mouthpieces broadcasting this message. Uh, of course, now I I would say the the circumstances have changed so much that you don't need the fringe to broadcast fringe messages because they got their strongest mouthpiece at the center of power in what is now the United States, and that's yeah. that's a real problem. Yeah. And they've been able, they, Republicans, like you were saying, white media, they've been really able, their ground game on social media is on point. They have really been able to utilize Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to really flood our, our inboxes, right? And I know I live in my own echo chamber, right? I only listen to those that I want to listen to. I don't listen to anybody else. And I dislike or mute different voices because they're not saying what I want to hear. Right? I, so, I've carefully, carefully crafted an echo chamber. Yes. Right. I love it. Right. We, I'm sure we all curate our social media for things that we only want to hear and listen to. And I am not interested in listening to the other side. I don't, I don't care. And I'm not interested in what they're saying. I don't care what they say. I think Rudy Acuna wrote a book, uh, Sometimes There Is No Other Side. Someone yeah. checked me on that. But I, no, I love that stance he took. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I, the, the book is sometimes about... Sometimes there is no other side. They want to argue for slavery and mass deportations. And no, there's no other side. Yeah. And that book is specifically about the creation, uh, well, it's about his court battle, but it's also about like uh, creation of Chicano studies. 
Um, really good book. Yeah. Rudy Acuna, yeah. Sometimes There Is No Other Side. I think that um, what Francisco was saying is super important to thinking about this whole conversation in terms of repetition. You know, when we think about the success that conservatives and fascists have had in this country through social media, right? And it's not just because there's one group of them that's saying the same thing over and over again, but there's a proliferation of these groups, right? And so, I mean, if you even think about our, com our community, there's a proliferation of groups that nominally, I think, have similar politics to the people that assemble on this podcast weekly. Why aren't we working together to provide the repetition in that message? I mean, it, it's a question, right? And I think, I think that perhaps there might have been a time uh, when it would have been much harder to do, but the way that technology has expanded all of our reaches over the last 20 years, I mean, there, there's no reason for that. I think it just is a matter of pulling it together to increase that, that repetition. I agree with that 100%. Repetition. Say it again. Repetition. I'll say it once more if somebody asks me. Nobody? Eh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> repetition. <laughs> I'm interested to see what, what Julia's at. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I was just kind of just listening and kind of absorbing what everything's saying. I think as far as like what I've been exposed to, as far as like what I'm curating on my own, like social media and like what I'm following as far as like what the community has been up to as far as like what's going on with this virus happening in our community. Um, there's been a lot of like small individual like grassroots organizations that are coming up to help those who are kind of like affected and those who are affected like they kind of, I don't want to say specialize, but they kind of focus on like um, people of color and Recently, this week, I was reached out by an organization to help with this, like, project that this smaller, like, group is doing um, with a lot of art. They wanted me to talk about, like, what I've been kind of up to, I guess, on, like, my schoolwork, on talking about how my family's been affected, how um, my... Um, schooling and just how my own personal um like work has been affected by um this virus um yeah and i think also going back on everything happening currently in boyle heights like there's just there's a lot of organizing i know in boyle huts there is a lot of organizing um one group in particular that i'm really kind of focusing on is um defend Boyle Heights it's like a it's like another smaller group um they all they talk a lot about the gentrification happening in that area and they also shout out smaller like individual um East LA like organizations also but that's just kind of like what I've been focusing on what I've been kind of like having my eye open towards and um within my family, um, you know, my parents and everyone's always saying what's happening at the moment, like what's the top story, like an update. And I always ask them like, who's writing this? Like who wrote this? Where are you reading it from? And I always, I'm always trying to question that. I'm always just trying to have them see that 
you know, like CNN's not always going to be the one to offer you the greatest or most valuable information ever. You're just, you know, seeing off of like a couple major news outlets. So um, I'm just trying to, one, follow as much groups as I'm able to follow, um, take in all the information I'm able to take in, and then kind of share that information in any way I'm possibly able to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, you know, because the other thing is this, is that even just like listening to you talk about your family, I mean, my, mine's the same way. I mean, we're obsessed with the latest information. Mm-hmm. I'm just obsessed with it. And I think that, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be like that guy that's like, oh, when I was a kid, but when I was a kid, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, you could go a whole day without somebody telling you something bad that happened in, in another country. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you had to wait till six o'clock to find out what was fucked up in the world. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I honestly, to tell you the truth, I could, I could use a little bit of, um, I could use a little bit of that right now in, in yeah. my life, you know, mm-hmm. or even just like six, six, what's that? Six thirty, Morellas. Six thirty. Oh, see, see, there you go. That's how. <laughs> That's how, that's my second grandpa moment of the day. It's uh, 6.30, yeah. But I mean, or like, you know, these stupid phones, man. Oh, I get so tired of this damn phone. Yeah. It just rings and everybody's like, why didn't you answer it? <laughs> I'm like, because I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, why do I have to answer the phone just because you call? I don't understand that, so. No one's yeah. calling me. And, and I think I'll it's- just I'll call you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And and I think it it reaches throughout all of our you know throughout the generations right like my parents are in their mid seventies they're on Facebook all the time and they'll say things like oh did you hear right like that <laughs> me yeah. and I'm like who said that I'm like that is not true yeah and <laughs> they come to me like I am the utmost expert on news right and I'm like because I asked them, I'm like, that's, that's not right. Please don't listen to that. Please, please turn that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfriend them or something because I see sometimes on their feeds and you know, it's hard because they, they live in LA. And so it's on my sister to kind of help them navigate what is real and what is not real. Like how, how they're filtering it. Right. And so it's challenging because they're like, well, it's on Facebook. Of course it's true. I'm like, no, it's not. Maybe what we should create is like a network of like grassroots uh, Chicano Latino reporters, and uh, they have to like verify themselves, and we'll give them the um, real news stamp of approval. Um, Morales, what? <laughs> I am not going. I am not going to the Capitol tomorrow morning with all them fools that are going to be out there. Is there another one tomorrow morning? Again, yeah, tomorrow morning. In Michigan. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Uh, it looks like I got out of there just in time. Huh. Well, anyways, I don't know. I think there's got to be a way to, to, to do this. I mean, it seems, um, you know, we look at all the things, or I look at uh, the stuff that's getting posted on Twitter, and... Um, you know, you see all the time, all these uh, videos of, um, you know, people getting beat up by the police and, you know, or killed by the police or whatever. And um, they have like a million, two million views on them. 
And I just look at him and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that all those people that watched that watched it because they were disapproving of what was happening, you know? Mm. And so it's just, it, it feels questionable to me. Yeah. I mean, to think about how we well, have those conversations. To, to just sidebar on that real quick. It's amazing how, uh, how those uh, uh, feelings as far as quote the thin blue line and all that have shifted a little bit now that you know that that uh, authority is being used to, uh, you know, perhaps keep them from, I don't know, going to the big box store or doing whatever, you know, I've seen a, a shift on that. And I'm like, really? I thought, you know, those were your boys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think that's part of the point you bring up, Ernesto, that there's so much out there that is it really news or is it really reporting or is it just entertainment or has it all become entertainment, you know, yeah. and it's just about entertainment. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things, too, that I see even in the school systems, you know, one of the things that we need to focus more and that we're trying to educate more on is just listening, you know, and I think that's where part of the who do you believe comes into question because as soon as somebody starts talking about something somebody's got an opinion on it they're jumping in on it they're giving you their point and we're missing the message you yeah. know we're missing the message yeah and, and the, the thing to, to piggyback on that is you don't even know if what they're saying is true i mean if it's a factual you know or you know is the you know like i was saying it, what were the number of flu deaths you know easily easily took me you know it took me 30 seconds to find the information it was not hard at all but you know i saw that same piece of misinformation three four different from three or four different sources i'm like i don't think this is true or if it's true what's going on and it was cherry picking you know of actual true data but they picked one year like i said the worst year out of the last 40 and then tried to make a weave a conspiracy out of it. So I think, you know, it's, it's just really hard because, because even if it's a source you kind of trust, you always have to, you know, try to do at least a little bit of minimally minimal uh, fact checking because it's just, you know, they might be wrong. You know, I'm seeing right now where the, uh, the person in Arizona who supposedly died, well, who died from, from the uh, fish tank cleaner, you know, now I'm seeing where the, the spouse is being investigated for, you know, possibly, you know, committing a homicide by poisoning him, you know, and is it true? Um, hard to say. She hasn't been convicted yet. But, you know, that was like three weeks ago. That was the story everywhere. And now, you know, you're going to get undercut, you know, for, for saying that this, quote, the drug, the actual drug that Trump pushed was was illegitimate or had risks. But now they're going to use that as to undercut and saying, well, you know, this source was wrong, yet the drug still causes heart issues and all other kinds of issues and has and should be very carefully, you know, utilized. But, but that was from a multiple, quote, trusted sources and they're wrong or potentially wrong. You know, there's, there's doubt. See, I think that, you know, part of what, what we really want to do, because we, for those of you who are listening, I mean, we kind of had a, a pre-conversation before we really started even recording here. And I think that, you know, part of part of what we really want to do is encourage people to multiply uh, platforms like this and to put out these sorts of uh, podcasts that have, uh, you know, like a, a political leaning to them. 
so that we can begin to uh, develop this, uh, this, this conversation, right, this debate to cause that repetition to, um, to happen. Because I think it's the only way that we're going to be able to move the needle uh, politically. I mean, culturally, I mean, culturally, I, I think that we probably got it on lock as a Chicano Latino community. I mean, we know who we are um, culturally, uh, our food, our, our, our language, our, our music, you know, all those types of things. But I just think that we lack a real, we lack a sense of ourselves politically and our position, not just here in the United States, but I mean, you know, the Americas. Who are, who are Chicanos and Latinos from the United States in relationship to the rest of this hemisphere even? Forget the rest of the world, even just this hemisphere, right? Because we're kind of like, you know, bastard stepchildren in a way. Um, and so, you know, how do we have yeah, a conversation on that? Here. Yeah, the well, Pachuco. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just exactly. remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no think, matter where, no matter where we go, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Today is old reference day for Reiner. That was, that's a good one too. Oh, oh yeah. Buckaroo. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, that's a good, so yeah. I'm still waiting for that sequel. I think I think that's a good conversation to pick up at another time, though. This 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 connection, this sort of visioning as as international subjects. Um, I think it I think it'd be a great conversation. Yeah. Um, I think I think the linkages are there. I don't know if we necessarily appreciate where they are and how they manifest themselves. And um, and you know I think I think there's also something to be said about solidifying that. You know, imagine if there was a uh, Chicanx exchange program that that was real deliberate and connected people and plugged people in in, in real overt ways. Then I think I think we'd see. Well, uh, I think we'd see this conversation. You know, it's it's interesting because my boy, it was Latinx History Month, right at the beginning of the academic year, and I ran into one of their counselors. And she's like, yes, yeah, so I was telling them to bring in some sort of like cultural thing or how do they felt about being Latinx. And so when the boys got home, I said, hey, so, you know, Miss Rowe, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, but Latinx, what's that? And I said. <laughs> they're like, and we're Colombian. They're like, well, it's, you know, <laughs> I talk about them being little brown boys and all that stuff. And they're like, yeah, but. I thought we were Colombian and Samoan, right? Yeah. And so they don't identify. And we don't talk about it at home that we're Latino or whatever. Mm -hmm. We talk about being Colombian, yeah. right? And so it's always really interesting. And we do travel to Colombia often, every other year at least. <laughs> and over there, we're not really Colombian. We're the American cousins mm -hmm. or the American part of the family. Yeah. So it's just very interesting going back and forth and being with family. And so, and so I just, that was funny when we talk about what does it mean to be Latino? Well, isn't that the, isn't, isn't that the same in Mexico? If, if uh, a Chicano goes to uh, Mexico, you're a gringo. Oh yeah. You don't even got to go to Mexico. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You you can get that treatment right here in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> when when, when right? we do talk about media, when we do talk about TV shows and stuff, and if we talk about hentai side, there's there's that character, and I don't remember their names now, but but to me, I'm like, my God, he, you know, these these are all Chicanos. This, yeah. this is the Chicano experience, yeah. and and they're treating him like he's whitewashed because he's bicultural because oh, yeah, he's bilingual yeah. and. Like, come on! This is this is what the this is the range of realities that we're yeah. experiencing. I think there's something to be said about physically being able to go, but I also recognize that mobility is a privilege. And you know, and, and for U.S.-based Chicanx people who have that you know, who have citizenship, who are able to travel, who have the means to do so, it's an incredible experience. But we also have that experience where we are, our communities, our our families, our extended families. Uh, you know, I think I think our live reality isn't one that's monolithic. And, and you know, Danny, you were talking earlier about your relatives and your relations. And you know, here's here's people that you're connected with. Here's ways of understanding the world around you that that doesn't rely upon those sort of tropes that are real monolithic. That that say you can only be in this category, and this is, and because you're in this category, these are the politics you need to ascribe to. And I think I think that's what we're discussing here in terms of. Finding those sites, finding those places, finding those things. Gentrification's fantastic. Look at that. We're going to put a new supermarket here, and we're going to paint this really nice. And you know, you're going to get the bikes that can take you downtown. And you know, oh, cool. Yeah, I want those things too. But at what cost? Well, the, you know, here's here's where I think we can sort through this stuff. And, yeah. and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and I think what uh, going back to what Alex and Rainer were talking about, I think that's very interesting because. Um, you know, who do you believe in? And yeah, who do other people believe in, in about sources when they're talking about Latinos, Chicanos in the USA? You know, because I, when I see it, I see it a little different now, you know? Uh, when I, I also go back to Mexico, you know, and my kids go back every other year too. And a lot of the times when talking about family members or such, you know, um, so they have a very distinct picture of us. And again, it's because of where they're getting those messages from. Yeah. Like, you know, if somebody was seeing us on here, you know, they'd be like, oh yeah, see, blood in, blood out. Two, three of them have short haircuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's blood in, blood out. Yeah, see, that's the way they do. That's what they do all the time. <laughs> it's balding. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know? But is that really the reality? And even, you know, this is a comment that I uh, we share sometimes, between my mother, you know, myself is like, sometimes we see my family in Mexico being more Americanized than us, but they just don't realize that, you know? Yeah. And then again, it's all based on, you know, where are you getting your information? What are you watching? Who's your source, right? Comes down back to that, right? Back to the source. That's all we have for now. This is Francisco Lopez signing off on behalf of the other dysfunctionals. Thanks for joining us in this dysfunctional moment. In the meantime, keep in mind independent voices are a key aspect of any juicy cheeseman line. And it is essential to remember all stories have more than one side. Technology will continue to make the dissemination of information a simple act that everyone can exercise. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the Rasa, 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 Rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.